welcome to another episode of the STG podcast. I'm Giovanni, your host as usual, and I'm again alone, but I have guest with me today, and it's Professor Gregory Parsons uh, from NC State University, of course, in the US. So, hello, first. Oh. And, well, maybe you want to introduce yourself, since you can do that better than me. Okay. Well, first of all, I appreciate uh, the invitation to be on your podcast. And thanks to uh, come. It's always nice to have different experts in the field. So it's nice meeting you at the at the conference um, earlier this year and um, hearing some about your work. But um, as a bit of introduction to me, I'm a professor in chemical engineering at North Carolina State University, and I've been working um, in thin film materials, gosh, for a long time now. I started as a PhD student um, working in deposition of hydrogenated amorphous silicon, which is a material that's uh, has been used in um, photovoltaics and thin film solar cells. And I got interested in deposition back then, and I was doing plasma chemical vapor deposition. And um, making a long story short, when uh, I started learning about atomic layer deposition back in the late 1990s, I got interested in it, and I, I kind of turned my direction towards it, and I've been working in that field ever since. So. Um, that's kind of how I got here. So also, when I was doing plasma-enhanced chemical vapor deposition, I got interested in the field of um, understanding how thin films start to grow. I got interested in the field of nucleation and area-selective deposition, actually, back in the 1990s. So when area-selective deposition became an important topic in atomic layer deposition, I kind of naturally gravitated towards that. So... Um, yeah, so I'm teaching in chemical engineering, but I'm trained as a physicist, and so I kind of come at my problems. I've taught myself, actually, um, quite a bit about surface chemistry, so I'm interested in chemical reactions on surfaces and how it influences the physical properties of materials. So, Okay, that's actually interesting, because with, uh, when Simon Elliott was here, we spoke about uh nucleation and uh, reaction at the surface, what happens in the really small scale at atomic level, uh, but he is more on simulation side. So maybe we could also go a little bit on the more applied side of this, like uh, before we go to the other selective ALD, that is more the main topic we wanted to speak. Why don't you just maybe describe how you practically do uh, analysis or how do you study the chemistry of and the nucleation of ALD processes? Sure. So, um, you know, in my lab, we have several um, atomic layer deposition reactors. These are all um, homemade reactors. You know, when we got started in ALD, um, there really was no place to go buy a lab-scale ALD reactor. And, um, you know, when I got started in plasma CVD as a grad student, I built my own reactor. So um, I felt confident you know, building reactors, and I decided that we were just going to build an atomic layer deposition reactor, so we've just been doing that ever since. And so we have several um, ALD reactors running in my lab right now. And um, So what type of reactors do you use? Yeah, so, so um, the reactors that we have are what we call viscous flow reactors, so they're generally, most of the reactors I have, not all of them, 
but most of them are hot wall reactors. So we just basically have a tube that we, um, we wrap in some sort of heater, like either heating tape or a furnace of some sort or some sort of oven uh, surrounding the tube. And we flow gases through the tube and, and film gets deposited everywhere inside that tube on the walls and whatever else we put in that tube. The tube can be various diameters. Typically, it's um, three or four centimeters in diameter, but some of our, we've made them that are eight, 10, 12 centimeters in diameter too. Um, so we, you can make them any kind of variety you like um, with the gases flowing generally across uh, the deposition zone. So that's, that's one type of reactor. Another type of reactor is what we call a warm wall reactor where the walls are um, not as hot as the growth zone, but you have a separate heating element um, inside the growth zone uh, where, the, where the film gets deposited. In that case, there's less film deposited on the walls. Uh, so it's just uh, uh, depending on different reactor types and reactor conditions or reactor systems and what you want to do in the reactor, sometimes one is better than another. But... Um, yeah, I guess that there will be like quite a big discussion again on this on the type of reactor yeah, right. you could use. So. <laughs> right, right. So the, the the nice thing about the warm wall reactors is that we can get in and look more easily at this at what's going on on the surface. Whereas in the hot wall reactors, everything kind of has to be the same temperature. So if you want to look at what's going on on the re on the surface somehow, if you want to look in with some sort of probe, then you have to drill a hole in the wall, and that spot then is no longer a hot wall, so okay, so of, you have uh, maybe like you have like a reactor you can see through directly to the whatever your sample is, right, right, okay. And when we so when we do yeah. when we're interested in looking at nucleation, what we do is we we basically have any kind of ALD process running, and then inside the reactor you just put uh, different materials in there, and then you do a small amount of deposition and then you pull out what you have in there and then you look at it and you look at it with some sort of, uh, you can actually, sometimes you can just look at it and see a color change on one surface and not on another. Sometimes you can see like a, uh, or if you use some sort of optical probe, like ellipsometry, you can detect a change, uh, an optical change on one surface compared to another. And from that, you can deduce that the nucleation is occurring differently on different surfaces. So that's basically, you know, the bottom line of how we, how we understand, you know, what's going on in terms of nucleation. So you do both uh, in situ measurement during the deposition and then ex situ. Also, you know, the easiest thing to do is ex situ, right? I mean, you, just, you put something in the reactor and anybody that has an ALD reactor can do this is you just put two different things in your reactor. And then, you know, it, if you do a lot of cycles, if you do a lot of deposition, then when you pull them out, they're both going to look the same. But if you just do a little bit of deposition, very often, I would say almost always, if you have two different surfaces, then one surface is going to react differently than another, and you can detect that difference. And from that, you can deduce something about uh, the mechanism of, of nucleation. Yeah, that was the... We were speaking about this, about the fact that uh, it's really complicated to really see what's going on in during the nucleation of a ALD reaction. So that's why 
all the simulation comes into play. And so because it's kind of indirect way that you measure what has been grown and then you kind of go backwards to think how what happened during the what well, during the deposition. And that's that's pretty true also in any kind of chemical synthesis. You know, um very often when we when when chemicals are produced all you see is what comes out of the reactor and then you have to vary the conditions inside the reactor and look at the trends and what comes out and from that information deduce what's going on inside the reactor and there's some pretty well-known standard protocols that are used in the chemical industry to enable one to do that so you know what we do here is is we work we apply those tools to understanding thin films. So moving to other selecting ALD. First of all, just to make it okay, my cat wants to join the conversation. Uh, just to make it uh, as a general, very quickly description of what it is. So basically, what you're trying to do is to grow ALD films only in certain parts of a substrate where you need the film to be. It can be some patterning, so can be some coating, only certain materials, not others, to grow the film only to protect something or on top of something that you need to what to coat. So what what do you do in your your lab and what kind of method you know about what can we do to achieve that? Okay, well I can tell you that um you know, the, the concept of area selectivity, um, it, you know, when we, uh, it, it's pretty, it, it's pretty elemental. It's pretty basic in, in the field of coatings, right? I mean, if you, you know, when you're painting a wall, right, you don't, you, you want to paint only in certain areas. Maybe you don't want to paint the trim around your window. You just want to paint the wall. So you just put the paint where you want it and you don't put the paint where you don't want it. And it's pretty, pretty obvious. But when we have a thin film deposition, you know, then the whole surface goes into the reactor and then you have to kind of tell the deposition somehow only go in one place and don't go on the other. And, and with ALD being this deposition technique that it's proud of being the deposition that goes everywhere and coat everything, it's it's even worse. Right. right, and so it's very uniform and very conformal and very regular, and so being able to control it is a little bit challenging. So it's not a little bit challenging; it's very challenging. So, um, so that's what we have to do, and we so the the way that we do it is, and the reason that we do it, the the reason that we want to do it is because. In virtually all functional thin film systems, whether it, you know, pick any kind of thin film system, like it's an electronics or an optical device or a photovoltaic or an energy device or a battery or, or anything you can think of that, that takes advantage of thin film technology. Um, you don't always want, sometimes you want a, a way, uh, a uniform coating everywhere, but mostly you don't. Mostly what you want is you want some sort of patterned film because because you want to be able to construct a device uh, using a little bit of this material and a little bit of that material and the materials have to touch and and interact in a certain way so 
you, you can't just make the device just out of uniform layers stacked on top of each other. There have to be holes in the, in the materials so you can make contacts and, and uh, this kind of thing. So patterned materials are everywhere in thin film devices. And the standard technology that's been, been used for, for many, many years is what's called photolithography. And that's the technology where, where you uh, use uh, some sort of optically sensitive material you spread that everywhere on your surface, and then you shine light on that material in a pattern. And then that material changes under the exposure to the light. And then when that material changes, then you can transfer that image that's in the material you have on top. You do an etching process, and that transfers that pattern to the material below that you want to pattern. And then you remove your resist material. So it's, it's a complicated a stepwise process uh, that uh, involves a lot of material, a lot of energy, a lot of um, a lot of time in the fabrication process. But it's it's used ubiquitously in the semiconductor industry. So um, you want to avoid that, basically, with this auto selectivity. Uh, yeah, you'd you'd like to avoid it, but uh, the real you know, the, the bottom line is, is that the semiconductor industry, they make money doing it. They can use, they have, they use hundreds and hundreds of these steps in making these transistors and it's okay. They still make money doing it. It's not, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, you know, it's too expensive for us to make these devices. The problem is, is that they want to make the features smaller and smaller and smaller. And it turns out that these optical techniques there's a limit to how uh, to how small they can make them and still be economically favorable. So there's some there's a technology that's known as X-ray lithography, and that uses um, X-ray um, X-rays to do the as the X-ray light, if you like, instead of optical, instead of ultraviolet light. And you can do that and make very very fine features, but it's tremendously expensive. So. Um, the semiconductor industry says, well, is there something else we can do to make very small features, you know, beyond the uh, ability to, uh, beyond our ability to um, do it optically? And the direction that seems to make sense is, is that, um, well, there's, you know, the surfaces that we want to make patterns on is they're already patterned. I mean, they've been, pat you know, We've done some sort of uh, lithographic step already, and we want to duplicate that pattern in the next in the next step. But you know, if we want to get those features to be aligned optically, they're too small to to align them optically. So why don't we just there's, there's information on that surface, chemical information on that surface that we can use to create the next layer so, so can we take do you have you have your previously uh pattern whatever other material you have and then you just want to put your ald on top of it or not depending on what you need and selectively only on those areas without repeating this uh, lithography step that would uh, then increase the error that you have you have to align the next layers and all these kind of situations so, yeah, so you can imagine like you have a pattern on the surface, right? And then, okay, I want to make another pattern. 
So what I do is, the way it's done now is you put down a layer of resist, and that basically covers up the pattern that's, that's already there. And then you use light to make a new pattern. Well, the pattern that's already there, you have to, you, your new, you want your new pattern to align or be connected to the pattern that's underneath it. And the way that you do that alignment is you do it you know, mechanically. Um, so what, you, what we want to do is we want to say, well, why don't we just use the pattern that's already there and do the alignment chemically? So, you know, the, the, the pattern that's there, uh, it contains two different materials. And like we were saying before, if you take any two materials and you put them in your ALD reactor and you just do a little bit of deposition, then virtually every time the two materials will result, there's... The, the chemical reaction on those two materials will be slightly different. So what we want to do in area selective deposition is, is, is basically that. We want to take a surface that has a pattern on it, and we want to do uh, atomic layer deposition, and we want to take advantage of the fact that the chemical reaction that occurs when you start the atomic layer deposition Take advantage of the fact that it starts differently on different surfaces. And then, okay, so if you have a, surf, a reaction that starts differently, well, can't you just, like, uh, just keep starting it? And, you know, don't let it, don't let it get too far. Just start it and then start it again and then start it again. You know, see what I mean? If you can just do the starting step, then you can build up, um, a, a, you know, a, a good layer where you want it without getting much deposition where you don't want it. Yeah, so you're basically exploiting the the fact that uh, ALD processes, well, any growth process in general, uh, has a different nucleation time or in ALD, like, so how many cycles you need to really start to get an actual layer on top of it. So is it, since it's different from different material, you're just, okay, here it grows much faster so I can get the film here before it starts to grow everywhere else. And then it might create some issues when, okay, it's growing faster here, but it's growing slower still on the other side. So you need somehow to clean that away or find a way to remove uh, a little bit of the film where you don't need that to be. Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, if, it, if maybe what you could do is maybe you could put something in there to slow it down even more on one spot. Or you so could do something to something chemistry. Yeah, or you could do something to make it go faster hmm. where you want it to go. So there's some there are tricks to be able to do that. So there's a lot of examples where reactions can go faster in one spot than another, or you can make it go faster by changing the chemicals that you use for the deposition. And likewise, you can make it grow go slower in other areas by Again, changing the chemicals so that the the chemicals uh, are less likely to stick in one surface compared to another. And uh, so, this is uh, on the trying to put the things only where you want to put them. But do you also have some insight on the fact that you can remove them also only where? you need to remove them like it's the opposite process but should be kind of similar so this is something that um 
there's a lot of interest in now is um, there has always been interest in it, but um, can we somehow um, you know do a little bit of deposition and then do a little bit of of um, cleaning or a little bit of etching we call it you know which is um, removing a little bit of the film where it's been deposited. So if you can um, grow a little bit, and if they grow differently on different surfaces, if, if it grows quickly on one surface and slowly on another, and you do a little bit of deposition, but then when, if you can etch, the trick is, is that you want the etching now, the etching should be the same rate on both. So if you do slow deposition followed by a fast etch, then you're going to remove that material. Whereas if you do fast deposition followed by a fast etch, then you're going to remove less material. So you do, maybe you do 30 cycles of deposition and then five etching steps. And so on one surface, that leaves you 25 deposition steps. But on the slow surface, those five removal steps are enough to re remove everything you formed in the first 30. Does that make sense? It's a little bit... So you got yeah zero step a little bit complicated yeah, right yeah yeah but that, yeah, that, so the, the, I mean it's simple at the end when you just put everything everywhere it just grows more on one side and that you remove everywhere but it removes everything from the slow side and not everything from the fast side if you want to make it very simple and I see the the, the the one of the big problems in a topic layer deposition is that. Is that if you draw these things, or if you think about them, and you draw them on a blackboard, about oh yeah, you do this deposition, and then you do this removal, then you do this deposition, and if you know the the rates of the deposition and the rate of removal, you can do some math and you can figure out oh, if I do this ten times, I should get this much deposition. But the problem is, is that after you know when if you do a deposition, then you remove it. The surface that you have now after you removed it is not the same as when you started. So you make some assumptions about, okay, I start with a clean surface, I do some deposition, and then I remove what I've deposited, and you're back to the clean surface. Well, not really. You're back to another surface, a different surface. You hope it's clean, but it's not always clean. More problems on, <laughs> on that. Yeah, so, so it's, under, you know, it's understanding that complexity of of um multiple reactions on the surface of how do you how do you manage it and what about the fact that you can uh, try to selectively put uh, some material or some any some type change in the chemistry and to may inhibit the growth on the area where you don't want the ALD fin to grow so the, this um this idea of inhibition um, it's, a, it, it's a really good idea, and it, it's a good idea because it works pretty well. Uh, very often it works pretty well. But what you do is, is um, you put some sort of chemical, you add a chemical into your chemical reaction that uh, preferentially sits on one surface and doesn't sit on another. And so there's a, like I said before, there's a natural... Uh, it, uh, most surfaces show some sort of natural tendency to either enable growth or not enable growth. So surfaces, some surfaces grow, will grow quickly and some will na naturally grow slowly. 
Um, but if you you can some you can add this inhibitor in uh, that will bind on one of the surfaces, you know, and not bind on another, and that slows the reaction down even more. So that accentuates the natural difference. So uh, people are looking at okay, how can I make inhibition inhibiting materials that will go where I want them to go and do a really good job of inhibiting the growth the way I want to inhibit it. And then, the, hopefully, it's something that I can remove easily when I'm done. Because I want, you know, I, I, this inhibitor is not going to be part of what I want my device to be. So I have to clean out that inhibitor. I have to remove that inhibitor. So hopefully, that's something that I can do fairly easily, too. Yeah, so it's kind of adding on the material integration problem where you it might be very easily uh, attaching to this surface, but then it's difficult to remove, and it's like kind of right, so it's, it's 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 kind of like uh, you know it's a uh, uh, it's a it's a benefit detriment kind of argument, right? Because if it sticks really well, then it's a really good inhibitor. But then if it sticks really well, then you might not be able to remove it. Right, so yeah, it's all a compromise at the end. So it's, yeah, that's, yeah. So uh, it has the the one other thing that for for me personally, I always been a little bit on the, the borderline. I really don't like when people call it a selective ALD when they use this uh, self assembly monolayers or SAMs, quickly called uh, that are basically molecules that attach. Uh, with a certain orientation to a surface and then uh, the new layer cannot grow on top of it or can grow on top of it and then you can remove the, the same and apply it again. Uh, it's often called a selective ALD, but it's really a protection of an area that where you don't want to deposit the ALD. So uh, that's a really good point. Is is It's kind of a subtlety, right? It's... it's um... So if you put down one of these self-assembled monolayers, and that's a common inhibitor material, and the idea is is that uh, molecules, the, the deposition molecules, they can't stick on the top of that self-assembled monolayer. So if they don't stick, and then you remove the, the SAM, then you've got area selective deposition. But what if the molecules do stick? And let's say you even get some deposition on top of the self-assembled monolayer. And then when you remove the self-assembled monolayer, there's no film. So the final product is the same. Oh, yeah, that's, that's fact, for sure. It's just uh, but what, sometimes but the what name is a bit weird. Yeah, so, so technically, one really is area selective deposition, and the other, when you have the film on top and then you, you remove that film, by removing what's underneath it, that's something we call liftoff. Yeah, exactly. So that's that was my point. Uh, you can do this with lithography already, and this is just doing it on a much smaller scale, uh, since so, the SAMs so can go much smaller than. So so now you're now you get into the real um, you get into the real weeds, the real difficulty of this area selective deposition. There's a big difference uh, practically between. Uh, what you just, what we just, you know, pick, take the example of the self-assembled monolayer, where in one case the uh, the reactions do not absorb on the surface, and then you just remove the self-assembled monolayer, 
and compare that to the case where you have the sulfosomal monolayer and reactants do adsorb on the surface, and then you strip that away, okay? So it, you, you think, okay, those two are the same. The final product will be the same. But in fact, if you think about, okay, let's look at right at the edge of that sulfosomal monolayer. Um, you know, the idea here is, is to make a pattern, right? So your sulfosomal monolayer that you want to have as your, as your inhibitor, it's going to end somewhere. There's going to be an edge of that layer somewhere, right? So if you have this, what we call overgrowth, and then you strip off the sulfosomal monolayer, what's, going to, what's it going to look like right at the edge of where you want deposition? You're going to have this kind of lip. You're going to have this kind of, if it's a continuous film that you've stripped off, right, there's going to be kind of like a broken edge there. And that edge is very often pretty nasty, right? But if yeah, you but then have, we, we are going to a very small dimension at that point because SAMs yeah. are like in the micrometer scale. So is the fin really coating the the whole surface, also the lateral surface? If we are growing five ten nanometer of ALD, that's kind of hard to know. So I would say yeah. So so it's it's you know what happens right at the edge of that feature is really going to be important now. And that's very often, like you say, you know, when we go to really small features, sometimes the edge of the feature is really the most important part, right? So, you know, do you get a clean line at the edge or do you get a rough, you know, do you get some sort of broken, you know, uh, yeah, like the broken film that edge? Yeah. yeah. So then this is some kind of issues that at some point, is there even a way to solve? There's a way to solve it. I'm convinced there's a way to solve it. We just, uh, we need more, uh, we need better chemistry, we need better understanding, we need more, um, more materials. We need okay. more. So there is no way at the moment, but of course, well, as everything, the more you study, the more you might find a solution. I, I think... I think that there are solutions out there that people are just not talking about. Okay, that's interesting. That would be... <laughs> well, of course, if it's something that is uh, in a competitive environment, uh, the companies don't want to tell what they are doing. So we cannot expect. It's, it's a very competitive environment. Very competitive. <laughs> yeah, of, of course, because the, when you can go down with the dimension first, then... Well, you do better things, smaller things, but and the other cannot keep up with you. So from here, it might be a good time to go to what are the, then the application of uh, selective ALD that we have now or potential application where this could really revolutionize or really help the industry? Well, um... I think that's a really good question. And I think um, the applications of interest depends on who you ask. Um, I think that people in the semiconductor industry, they will tell you that there are a few uh, big problem areas that need attention right now. Um, one of them is um, what they call fully aligned via, which is um, being able to make connections, um, you know, when, we, when they make semiconductor wafers, 
what they typically do is after they make the transistor, they have to connect all the transistors. So what they do is they put an insulator and then they put a metal and then they pattern, they put an insulator and they drill holes in the insulator where they want to put their contacts. Then they put a metal and then they make lines, they pattern lines in the metals. Then they put another insulator on top of it and then they drill holes in that. Then they put down another metal and they pattern that. And so when they drill these holes to connect one metal to another, they got to be sure that the holes that they drill go through the insulator and touch the metal that they want to connect to. If they miss the metal, then it's, um, it's an error. Yeah, they're not connection anymore. Yeah, so the holes, they call them via, right? So you want to, you sh- you want to be sure that the vias are aligned. The holes are aligned with the metal underneath it. And so, in fact, it's, it's not just enough that the hole touches the metal. You want the hole to only touch the metal. So if the hole just kind of part, ha- gets half of the metal, then that's a problem too. Because now, um, you think of it, it's like, okay, well, I, co- I contacted the metal. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is you miss the metal by a little bit, which means that you're now close to the metal next door. The lines are very close together. So you got to be sure that you only get the metal because if you only, if you get, if you move over a little bit, now you're too close to the neighbor. So they want to be sure that those lines are exactly where they want them to be. And they can't do that with traditional lithography. So what they want is they want to be able to, instead of depositing a uniform insulator and cutting holes in it, they want to do a selective deposition. And then, then the only thing that's exposed is the metal. So now they put down metal and they can't miss, basically. So, so that's what they call a uh, fully aligned via. So that's one application that's kind of um, that people are talking about. Um, there are many others in the semiconductor industry. For example, things I've heard about are, you know, when we when they do a um, some sort of patterning where they dig a hole uh, deep into a trench, and then they uh, cover that trench with an insulator. Well, there might be a little spot on that insulator where there's a hole. They may have um, there may be some sort of error or defect. And what they would like to be able to do is, you know, at the bottom of that hole, there's a little bit of metal that expo- that's exposed. So it would be really great if they could go in and just fill up, put in a little bit of insulator where the metal is exposed. Well, that's a selective deposition. If you can put an insulator on only on metal, then you can patch holes. So that's a, um, you know, that, that would be a very useful uh, tool to uh, fix errors in processing. And you can flip it around too. You know, if you have, maybe if you want to put a metal and you you want to be sure your metal is continuous, well, you put down a metal and there's, oh, there's some gaps in the metal. What if I could just go put a metal only on the insulator? So then the metal would not get any thicker everywhere else, but it would be, it would fix the gaps. So that's that's another area where area selective deposition, you know, could be useful. You know, so that's it's, it's not only the, the patterning issue, it's also the, at this point, like correct previous error. 
uh, fixing an error or, uh, yeah, or, um, you know, um, so the, the other thing that you'd want to do is um, um, you may want to, you know, build the device kind of from the bottom up. You know, you may want to um, put down multiple layers um, or fill in gaps, you know. So, for instance, um, if you have a... Um, if you have a pattern surface and you you want to um, fill, uh, maybe there's a there's a trench, and you want to fill that trench. Well, can you fill it from the bottom up? You know, instead, of what we do now is is you you coat that trench everywhere, and the sides kind of come together and they form like a seam in the middle. Well, you'd like to get rid of that seam, so you'd like to fill it from the bottom up. So if you if you can deposit metal for example only on metal and if you have an insulator that's a trench and then with the bottom is metal and you deposit metal on metal then that metal will deposit whoop go up horizontally instead of instead of um filling in laterally so that's another example and then you can you can expand that to to many different uh scenarios if you start thinking about, oh, we could do this and do that, and then you could build trenches and you could build. So now you could build, you know, now do the opposite of that. So you build this spike and then you remove it. Then you remove the insulator. Now you have these spikes. Now you, you have these things that you can make that you wouldn't be able to make otherwise. So, so um, there's a, lo a lot, so, so many, many different scenarios. That, yeah, we don't we even know that could be used. Yet. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Another area so, that people are... Go ahead. Where, do, where would you say the research is at this point on the error selecting deposition? Uh, say that again, please. Uh, where, where is the research? Like, which point is the research? Are we already very close to the application? Is it entering uh, in industry soon or... Is it still an academic research at the moment? Or? That's an excellent question. And the answer is, um, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I think, that's I usually think the best answer. Uh, <laughs> I, I can, what, what I hear is, is that area selective deposition is being used. Uh, there are examples of area selective deposition in manufacturing. Um, the ones that I know about are not atomic layer deposition-based, they're more chemical vapor deposition-based. Um, but uh, and I think the easiest, uh, or the, the one that's received the most attention in terms of or the most publicity, if you like, is um, things related to metal deposition on other metal. So there's a pretty, pretty well-known process that allows for cobalt metal deposition only on copper. Uh, that's what's called the cobalt cap at this with cvd yeah it's a cvd process yeah um and it deposits about 10 nanometers of cobalt only on copper and it doesn't deposit any cobalt or very little on insulator so um you can use that process if you want to and sometimes you need to you need to cap copper because copper diffuses very easily in semiconductors so you want to encapsulate it 
So that's, that's one application where it's being used. Um, there probably are others, but uh, they're not being widely publicized. Another area... Well, if we don't want to go on the this uh, vapor deposition or really advanced small-scale deposition, like depositing metal on metal has been done in a liquid chemistry uh, forever, basically, like all the coating of big uh, metal structures that are like putting chromium on, on metals and all this kind of attacking coating has been done with, if you want to say, RS-selective deposition since it only grows on metal because the metal is conductive and there is a... Uh, like that's that's what you call like, yeah. electric electro deposition or yes. electrolyst deposition. There's some no, sort of exactly reaction. It was not in my mind for some, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's been like it's not a new thing to deposit selectively on certain materials. The issue is now is doing it on a nanometer scale. Uh, there's another area. Another another area where areas like deposition is really interesting is the area of of catalysis. So. People are working at designing catalytic materials and catalytic structures uh, to do uh, chemical reactions. And very often, uh, the shape of a, of a catalyst is really important in determining how a reaction will occur on that catalyst. So there's a lot of interest in area-selective deposition um, in analysis to design catalytic structures. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always that when... We are speaking to a certain technique. It's always you see it from your field, but then uh, it can be applied for so many different things. Uh, because if you don't do catalysis, then someone else is doing it and maybe using the same way, same techniques you're doing, just the result is different. And now, since we are trying to keep this not too long, uh, before we close it, we still have maybe 10 minutes. Do you want to? talk about something else you're doing in your lab that you think would be interesting for the people listening? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, the, in, in our lab, we're interested in general in, um, in thin film materials, and that is materials that you can form into structures that are usually on top of another layer, another surface, or maybe even films that can be freestanding or or um, interested in solid materials. Uh, and th there's been some really interesting um, advances. The other thing, in general, you know, if you think about what materials do people deposit, um, if you look back in history and say, well, what do people deposit? It's always, usually, it, it, it's like a, a semiconductor, like silicon or germanium. Uh, those are made for thin films, semiconductors, uh, solar cells, for example, or insulators. Insulators are used ubiquitously in semiconductors, devices, or metals. And you say, well, what other materials are there? Well, there's not really that many other materials. Well, you can say, well, what about uh, polymers? Uh, you can, can you deposit polymers? And the answer is yes, you can deposit polymers. And it goes by what we call molecular layer deposition. Or you can do polymers by chemical vapor deposition also. Uh, in molecular layer deposition, uh, you can deposit polymers. And the chemistry that's involved in molecular layer deposition, to a large extent, 
mimics the chemistry that's involved in atomic layer deposition. And most of the, and, and this is, this field has been examined for people have been working in this field for 20 years or maybe more. And it's really interesting the, the different combinations of materials that you can get by substituting um, the inorganic materials for organic materials. So you can use, you know, um, uh, alkanes or uh, diimids, for example, where the, uh, you have an organic group that has uh, an amine functionality on one end and another group, another molecule that has um, hydroxyl function functionalities. And those two reactants, if you introduce them sequentially into a reactor, uh, they will react with each other, and you can grow. In that case, it might be something like an, something akin to nylon. So being able to do molecular layer deposition um, opens up a whole new range of, of opportunities for materials. And this is an area that I think is really interesting in terms of the complexity that's possible with the chemistry. And yeah, this um, <coughs> MLD is something that we also do in our lab, and <coughs> we insert uh, organic layer into the organic layers. And well, the fact that it's called MLD instead of ALD is kind of a little bit, uh, it's basically the same thing. It's just one at the end deposits atoms, <coughs> and MLD deposits more bigger organic molecules, but it's exactly the same since most of the organic precursors are anyway organic with the metal usually in there and you just get rid of the organic groups during the reaction and in this case you get rid of some of the groups but you keep for example a benzene ring and you keep it in your film and then you continue whatever you're depositing so so many of the mld processes as you correctly say are very akin to ald and 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 the distinction between ald and mld is sometimes, you know, semantic. And so uh, some, sometimes people refer to MLD, they just call it ALD. And really, there's no problem with that. I think that practitioners in the field understand what you mean. Um, what's interesting to me is that if you look at the, ML, the, the progress in molecular layer deposition, um, virtually all of the reactions that people have done, they're similar to the kind of chemical reactions that people have done for metal oxide ALD or metal nitride ALD, where there's um, some sort of ligand exchange reaction or ligand substitution reaction uh, where one ligand on one molecule just exchanges for another ligand. And this works great. You know, like the example that I mentioned before for nylon, that's a ligand exchange reaction. And I presume that the reactions that you've done with the metal center, also, you know, you bring in, you probably bring in something like a metal alkyl, like a trimethyl aluminum. And yeah, yeah, it's in a, the basic uh, trimethyl aluminum and, and then you... Yeah, so, it's a, yeah, so it's, that's aluminum with a methyl ligand. And then you bring in an organic component that has, maybe it's got a diol, it's got an oxygen on one end, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's then, uh, usually OH group or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so then you form an aluminum-oxygen bond, right? Yeah. 
And so you exchange the methyl group for this oxygen organic group, right? So in that case, the, the metal um, does a ligand exchange. And that's very similar to the ligand exchange reaction that occurs for the metal oxide. If you do aluminum oxide atomic layer deposition, it's the same kind of ligand exchange. So the, the question is now, is that, is, well, you know, what if you, when you do a, a, an elemental material, you de deposition of an elemental material, like a metal, for example, when you do deposition, atomic layer deposition, say, for instance, of copper, you might bring in a copper organic, a metal organic species that contains copper. But when you do the deposition, you're no longer doing a ligand exchange because what you have to do is you have to get rid of the ligand and then you have to form a bond to another metal atom. So now you have to do some sort of reduction step. So now when you bring in the, the metal organic, you need to do something in order to get that ligand to come off. And usually that's what we, you know, a chemical reduction. You oxidize the ligand and you reduce the metal. So my question is, is what about doing that with a molecular layer deposition reaction? There aren't that many examples of being able to do that. And I think that that's, that's kind of an open field. Yeah, the, uh, there was one postdoc in our group that actually deposited metal copper and it was reducing with an organic precursor. Then, of course, this creates problem because it introduces a huge amount of carbon in the film. So, yeah, it's, it's a metal copper, but it's heavily contaminated with carbon. But it's, it's showing the chemistry that actually works. You can deposit only copper using an organic precursor, basically. Right. But the, but the interesting question is, is can you do, can you do, a, can you do carbon deposition? with a molecular layer deposition. Okay, so, so it's just a carbon layer directly after the deposition. What, like what I'm a, saying is, is can, can you do molecular layer deposition and form carbon-carbon bonds the same way we do atomic layer deposition and form metal-metal bonds? Hmm. Okay, that would be... I, I have no idea if someone actually did that. It, it, it's been done, Okay, um, but it's, it's just not... It, it's kind of you know in in the in the in the broad field of molecular de layer deposition, this is just not very widely looked at. It's not there hasn't been a lot of study in that area, and I I think that it's um, I, I think it's fascinating that what you know what could happen. So that's that's another area that we're looking in. Um, we're, we're actually doing molecular layer deposition of conducting polymers like. Um, PDOT is a very famous conducting polymer that we've formed via molecular layer deposition, where the carbon-carbon bonds are formed by what they call oxidative polymerization. So, um, I, you know, that's another thing that we're doing in our lab that, that, um, that I think is really interesting, and it opens up the door to, uh, to new materials. Also, integration of the organic thing to pre-existing films like uh, the p dot it's could be it's a p type material and could be used in combination <laughs> with an n type material to do well what i i, I do thermoelectrics but anything else that uses 
Uh, so yeah, now when you, when you start to think about organic materials and you start to think about metals and metal oxides with organic components, um, the next thing you can jump to is, is the materials that are uh, known as metal organic frameworks. And those are crystalline compounds that involve, that include uh, metal oxide clusters. Sometimes these clusters just have a few atoms in them, two, three, four, five atoms. Um, and then those clusters are connected by organic, what we call linker groups. And these metal organic frameworks, they're very often open network porous materials. They're crystalline and they're very stable actually. And uh, they're very interesting. And so that's another material that we're studying now quite heavily in our group is is um, is thin films of these metal organic frameworks, but I think that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. I mean, we also have people in our group that do that, and it's a uh, it's another hour of discussion. So we could leave that for <laughs> for later on if we continue with this ALD. If people are not too bored already, uh, <laughs> I would say that it's a it's a good time now to close this. So. Before we end, do you have some something to like where people can find you if they want to ask you something? Do you have some social links yeah, my, uh, or website or yeah, yeah, my email is gnp at ncsu.edu. You can reach me there. Um, I also have uh, we have a group Twitter account. Um, I think it's called Parsons Thin Film. Okay, well, it's, I can put all these links then. Yeah, in the in the podcast description, of course. And we have a web page. Um, you can just Google uh, Parsons uh, North Carolina State University, and you can find my web page that way. Okay. Um, Good. Well, thanks again to uh, for joining, and it was an uh, interesting discussion. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. And well, uh, for us, as usually, I tell to go to our Twitter account that is at stg underscore podcast come there if you have any question about any episode if you want to ask something if you want to just speak with us come there we if you are an expert in some interesting field maybe you want to come to speak with us we always come up with experts from all different fields okay thanks and see you next okay all right look forward to seeing you again yes bye bye Thank you.